as Christians, our great commission is to make disciples. We all understand that. And simply stated, a disciple is one following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and on a mission with Jesus. But one of the things that we need to understand is this. Our calling is not just to baptize, but it's to equip all believers to be fully devoted, to be self-feeding, reproducing Christ's followers. That's what we should be doing. That is our mission. So maybe if you're a new Christian or if you're a Christian that um, you feel like you're new, you haven't grown to where you need to be yet, maybe this mini-series that we're going to start today will help you in your faith. And for those of you that's been Christians for a while, this study can shore up any cracks in your spiritual foundation, and maybe it can supplement any deficiencies in your spiritual formation. I really like the term that Horace used this morning. He said, a tune-up. I like that. And that's what we can do. If we're Christians for a long time, maybe we need a tune-up, um, and this would help. Well, with that said, let me just jump right in and lay the foundation for our study with the message entitled, The Balanced Christian Life. And that's what we're going to do today. This, people's wondering, what in the world a preacher doing with an old wheel? Well, this is the cleanest one I could find in my junk pile. But if you notice the wheel, it has a center hub here. It has spokes and then the outside brim. And that's something I want you to keep in mind as we go through this series Today we're going to talk about this center hub here. And I'll leave this up here, but it's for, it's for an Ill, illustration here. Um, to roll smoothly, you know, we need a solid hub, we need a rim, and we need spokes, you know, for a wheel to work properly. And Galatians 2.20, that's going to be our text today. Galatians 2.20, um, we're going to see that our hub um, is to make Christ the center of our life. That's the hub. We have to make Christ the center of our life. Now, understand this to understand this verse, I think we really need to know what's going on in the whole book of Galatians so you'll know how this verse came about. Paul wrote this. When he, when he wrote this, he, the epistle to the church at Galatia, he wrote it to confront one of the first and most serious heresies of all of church history. Let me read this, this verse to you. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, to understand this verse even more clearly, if we know what, how it came about and why it was written, well, there are really only two religions in the world. If you boil everything down to its lowest common denominator, you'll get two religions in the, in the world. And the first prescribes that all men must do to please and be accepted by God. Basically, it's a religion of rules, it's a religion of laws, it's a religion of human works. But the other is based on God's mercy and His grace. It is not a religion, it's not of human works, but it's of the work of God. You see, in fact, it begins with the premise that there is nothing that sinful man can do to please a holy God. And Jesus spoke of these two um, religions often. 
He did. You know, the first goes you go, the first goes by many names and each with its own nuances and beliefs and, and uh, practices. But basically, it's man trying to work his way to God. That's the one religion. You know, and Jesus said that in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he said that religion, it's a wide gate. It has a wide road. It has, you know, there's many people on it. Um, and it leads to destruction. But then in contrast to that, the religion based on God's works and not man's works requires man to humbly trust in all that God says and do. And Jesus says this religion leads to life. It leads to a narrow gate and a narrow way. And there's only a few that's going to find that. Now, when Paul founded this church here, he founded on the sound doctrine that, that people were saved by grace and through faith. But there was a group of Judaizers there. Um, they came in and they confused the Galatians with their teachings. You see, the Christians in Galatia, they were mostly Gentiles. They had confessed their faith in Christ and, and the one true son of God of Israel, you know, and they had repented of their sins and they had been obedient in baptism. But the Judaizers, they came along and they were stirring things up and they were telling the Christians there, they were saying, hey, it's great that now you believe in, in, in the one true God and have accepted his Christ. But to please him, what you have to do is you have to obey and keep all the law of the Old Testament and all the rules that we've added. So they were, they were doing it. See, what they were doing, they were making Christianity just another denomination within the man's works religion. That's what they, they were doing. Now, if you remember, before Paul met Christ, he had been a champion of the salvation by works. Remember, he was a zealot for the law. But from Christ, he learned that the purpose of God's law was never to save man. You see, God's purpose in his law was to reveal two things to man. And the first thing was that the absolutely holy nature of God that was what was supposed to be revealed in it. And the second is that all are sinners who fall short of His glory. Now, the law can help us to know God's desire for how we should live, but mostly it shows us that none of us can ever live good enough to please Him on our own. We can't do that. So in Paul's words, according to Galatians 3 and verse 24, the law was our tutor. In other words, it was our schoolmaster. You've heard me use that term before. The law was something we learned by. Paul said it was our tutor. Now, when Christ was crucified, he did for us what no one could ever do for themselves by keeping the law. No one could do that. He justified us before um, God's law. Now, justified, I like the phrase Tim used one time. If you don't understand that word, justified is just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. Well, he justified us before God's law by making a propitiation or a atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the, and the letter to Galatians, it was written to remind us again of what Jesus did and to call us to respond to that, not with more human works, but with a deep love from a grateful heart. And that's why, that's why it was written. 
To become a Christian is to place one's faith and one's trust in the goodness and in the promises of the work of God at Calvary through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, as he reminded those Galatians there that salvation is by grace through faith and not by works, Paul described his own salvation experience. And here's what he said in our text that we're using. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Folks, there is a true Christianity and there's a false Christianity. There are wise men and there are foolish men building religious houses. There are tares among the wheat. There are goats among the sheep. Over and over, the Bible tells us. For an example, in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, test yourselves to be sure that we're genuine. And then in our text here, in Paul's description of his own Christian life, he gives us a three-point checklist here by which we can examine our own Christian experience. And that's what I want to share with you today, that three-point checklist here. Number one, a true disciple has a new mindset for living. A true disciple has a new mindset for living. In our text, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ liveth in me, or lives in me. The word crucify here, when you check it out, when you run its history, this is a perfect tense verb. That means that though this event occurred at some time in the past, Paul's focus is not so much on the event itself as it is with the results which continue into the present, you see. So one day, Paul was baptized into Christ a radical, but results of that one act carried forward, you know, and were still, and they were still impacting Paul's life. Now, what happened to Paul should be what happens to every one of us as Christians. When you look at that, our life should be patterned just like that. You know, as he was united with Christ, he took on a new mindset for living. It's something that he did in his death. Jesus had paid the penalty of Paul's sin, something he'd been unable to do in all the years of his very conscientious law-keeping. And Paul was one that kept the law, but that's something that he could not do. But Jesus provided that. But the day he put his faith in the efficacy or the effectiveness or the assuredness of that sacrifice to save he responded to Christ's death by dying to self. You see, he responded to Christ's sacrifice for him by presenting himself a living sacrifice to Christ. He reckoned or he began to think of himself as dead. The old self had died. And that's the way Paul was thinking about it. Now, Jesus gave us two commands to show our faith in his sacrifice both repentance and baptism are all about expressing a new mindset. You see, to repent literally means to change your mind, to think differently. Um, you know, that's what you do when you reckon yourself dead 
and baptism, an ancient ritual of identification used by many religions, um, is also to show yourself and to others um, that we, by faith in Christ, now think of ourselves as a new person. Of course, it means more than that, and we'll get into that in just a bit. But that is one of the things that it does. I'd like to share with you Romans 6, verse, the second part of verse 2 through 6. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. And then Jesus said over in Matthew, the 16th chapter in verse 28, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Of course, this is not to say that his true disciples will literally walk around carrying crosses. It doesn't mean that at all. You see, he's talking about our mindset, you know, how we should think about ourselves in relation to him. And don't miss how truly radical this is. You see, the cross is not just about suffering. You know, there was certainly, there was great suffering on the cross, but in the end, the cross was all about death. You see, it was an instrument of execution. So to deny yourself and take up a cross means to die to self. You know, and that's what we must do as Christians. You know, it's what we pledge in our baptism. To be a Christ follower, you must adopt the mindset that you're no longer alive. You're no longer, it's no longer about you or your life. You see, to follow him, you must lose yourself. As Jesus said in, in Matthew, the 16th chapter, verse 25, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Beloved, that's the same message from the beginning to the end. Um, to become a true disciple, a true Christian, is to intentionally, radically, and permanently in your heart and in your mind first crucify, then bury the sinner that you once were so that you can become the servant Christ wants you to be. I want you to think just a moment about how lost and how distorted this basic tenet of our faith has become. You know, the devil tries to water down everything that we do. And it's easy to follow him because that's the easy way. That's the easy way out, you see. But think about how this has been so distorted, you know, and so lost over, over time. You know, think about how silly, how unbiblical, things that people today who call themselves Christians say. Things like, well, I just want Jesus to be a part of my life. Or if you're really super uh, spiritual, you know, I just want Jesus to be a part of everything I do. 
I've even heard preachers tell people, what you need is to make Jesus a part of your life, or you need to add Jesus to the equation. Folks, really, that is the wrong mindset. You know, it's not about Jesus being a part of anything. It's about Jesus becoming everything. You see, you don't become a Christian by adding Jesus to your life. You become a Christian by no longer having a life, by having all of life, be all about him, be by him and for him. Now you say, Preacher Greg, that's kind of a hard teaching. You better believe it is. And it's always been hard. But folks, we've watered it down over the centuries and over the years. We need to look at it as the Bible looks at it. Listen, even in the New Testament, when the crowds um, that were following Jesus, when they finally began to understand what Jesus was really saying, all of those who were following them to get food or to be healed or maybe to have some, um, give some social justice, when they really finally understood the radical demands that he was making on his would-be followers, the Bible says in John the 6th chapter, starting with verse 66, it says the crowds departed. You know, they didn't walk with him anymore. They didn't like what they were hearing. And then Jesus, at that point, he turned to the 12, and then he asked, will you too go away? And Peter, having a good day that day, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Only you have the words of life. So the question this morning is, one of the things that we need to ask ourselves, do you have a Christian mindset? Friends, to follow Jesus, you must first, of course, repent and be baptized. You know, that's how he commanded us to crucify and bury the old so we think differently. And frankly, if you hesitate to do that, you really don't have a Christian mindset. As yet, you say, well, preacher, that's kind of rough too. Um, yeah, but here's what Jesus said in Luke 6 and verse 46. You, you know, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You see, the question for most of us today, myself included, when I say us, I'm talking about me, everyone, is when you first came to Jesus and they lowered you into that water, did you really crucify and bury the old? Did you really do that? Was that your promise in that act? You know, 1 Peter in verse, chapter 3 and verse 21 says it's not the washing of the body, but the appeal for a good conscience. You see, it's putting on a new mindset that makes baptism a meaningful event. Without a new heart, we just go down as dry sinners and we come up wet ones. You see, back to our text. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is I, no longer I, who live. Folks, that's the mindset of a true disciple. The second thing, a true disciple has a new means for living. A true disciple has a new means for living. Back to our text. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, what do, exactly does it mean to live by faith? I'm glad you asked because I want to answer it. It means that we all trust God and we express that trust by simple obedience to whatever he says. That's how we express that faith. 
Remember after their baptism, the Great Commission, you know, it says true disciples are to uh, learn to obey everything he has commanded. Now that is how a true disciple lives by faith. And by the way, righteous has always lived by faith. Remember the study we just got through with, going through Proverbs, Proverbs, the third chapter, starting with verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. As the old hymn says, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. You know, there are people because of financial struggles or financial reasons, um, they have been told by competent fan financial advisors, cut all unnecessary expenses, including your tithes, until you have a more disposable income. Well, I suppose from a fleshly view, that may be sound advice, but let me tell you something, folks. That's walking by sight, not by faith. Jesus said in Matthew 6, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So a true disciple with a new mindset who understands his new means will obey God's words concerning the tithe and trust the Lord to meet his financial needs. Something I learned a long time ago, you cannot outgive God. Amen. Never. Friend wants to witness to his unbelieving co-worker. So every Friday, he goes for happy hour and drinks a few drinks with them. He says he needs to exercise his freedom in Christ in this way so he can share his faith later on. You know, but folks, there again, that's walking by sight. God says the greater witness is when we live a distinctive holiness and pure uh, purity. When we live in, in those with that frame of mind. I know in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 22, avoid every appearance of evil or abstain from, from every evil. Different translations say it different ways, but you get the idea. Don't even be caught around evil. Abstain from it. Avoid it. You know, and then 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 tells us, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God. Pretty strong, folks. We need to get back to the Word and quit watering things down. Ladies, maybe you have a husband, a pagan husband, you know, and you might think it's, it's reasonable to badger him to, to read the Bible or pray and go to church or whatever. Maybe you could secretly put, load his CD player in his car with sermons or Christian music or or you put Bible verses on the bottom of his beer bottles or whatever. But folks, that's walking by faith or walking by sight, not by faith. You see, faith will obey the word. Listen to this. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your... Some say chaste, some say chaste, and respectful behavior. Folks, living by faith is not easy. It is hard, you see. But let me say this. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, in verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The third checkpoint here, a true disciple has a new motive for living. A true disciple has a new motive for living. Back to our text. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Folks, listen. Begrudgingly following a bunch of rules because you fear God will zap you or reject you later is really an inadequate motivation for living as a true disciple. A much more powerful motive is love from an overwhelming gratitude. Love from an overwhelming gratitude. In 1 John chapter 4, starting with verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. You know, the apostle Paul, he was keenly aware of his own sin. He stood by and he proved the murder of Stephen. And then he led the persecution. And still Jesus endured the cross so that Paul would escape the wrath of God. And then Jesus came down from heaven and he personally communicated his love and a noble purpose to Paul's life. You see, Paul never forgot the Lord's sacrifice to him. Romans, the fifth chapter, starting with verse 6, he wrote, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I really hope you didn't come to church today from obligation. I hope you came because you couldn't wait to show God how grateful you are for his amazing love. I hope that's why you came to church. Isaac Watts, another songwriter, he wrote, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Folks, I really believe there is a huge disparity between the gospel preached by Jesus and the apostles, and that's what's being preached today. I really believe that. When Jesus called men to discipleship, he said, look in, in Luke, the 14th chapter, verse 28. Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not sit down and calculate the cost to see if he's had enough to complete it? When was the last time you've heard a modern preacher say, don't stand up, don't raise your hand, don't come forward until you sit down and counted the cost? When was the last time you heard that? No, I can tell you what you hear. Modern evangelists, they remind their audience that they are sad, that they are lonely, that they are discouraged, that they are unsuccessful, and they say life is heavy and, and trouble encompasses, encompasses us and the future holds dark threats. They'll tell you that. And then they'll invite the poor sinner, which they call seekers, to come to Christ who will change all of that and put a smile on their face. It's kind of a health and wealth kind of gospel. 
You know, he's pictured as a cosmic um, psychologist who will patch up all of their problems in just one session. But see, no one tells them that following Jesus requires great sacrifice. No one tells them that following Jesus is going to be hard and it's going to be painful and it's going to be tough. Walter Chantry, he writes, it isn't surprising that many go forward to try the modern gospel pill but are never to be seen again. They react like a young military recruit. The recruiting sergeant tells them about seeing the world and about honor and about fortune and about training. But nothing is said about the early rises and the forced marches and the KP duty they have to do. Nothing is mentioned about the blood and the fire and the battlefield error um, or terror. Nothing is mentioned about that. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus does not want to trick you at all. You know, he's not offering you the end of the world's worldly sorrows nor of a flowery bed of ease. Jesus will not enlist you under false pre pretenses. He says, the road following me, it's rough and it's steep. Stormy weather encompasses the entire course. There will be hills of difficulty and valleys of humiliation for all genuine Christians. I set before you the symbol of a cross to vividly portray the difficulty and the personal demands that I will make of you. Oh, I love you, and I want you to come, but you've got to count the cost of following me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, Paul describes a true disciple's salvation experience like this. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Folks, what is your experience in all of this? Let's run the checklist in your own mind quickly here. Do you have a new mindset for living? You know, have you truly uh, crucified and buried the old man, the old woman? Do you have a new means for living? Do you know what it means to walk by faith and not by sight? And the third checkpoint, or finally, are you living with a new motive? You know, is your goal of your life to truly, in everything you do, to honor him who died for you? Folks, we need to get back to the word and quit watering it down. Understand what Christianity is. It's not easy. It is hard. But the rewards are out of this world. The world, the, the rewards are great. You see, questions we all need to answer, you know, in the fundamentals of of Christian discipleship. You know, is our Christian life balanced? What do we say to these three questions? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us that being a Christian is not easy. But Father, we know that the rewards are awesome. And Father, we know that it's certainly worth it because we know the alternative. And we don't want to be there. Father, thank you for providing a way for us so that we could live with you one day. In Jesus' name, amen.